For over 50 years, Elton John and Bernie Taupin have been writing hit songs together. Elton John the music, Bernie Taupin the lyrics. Just for fun today, I challenged myself to see how many of them I could fit into a minute and a half montage. Don't get whiplash now. It's a little bit funny This feeling inside Mars ain't the kind of place To raise your kid Take me to the pilot Beat me to the tamer Take me to the pilot I'm not a stranger Blue jean baby L.A. lady Luckily, these are some of the most recognizable songs in rock history, so pretty easy to catch within just a few notes. I'm sure there are some of you, though, screaming into your device, how could she leave out, I don't know, Philadelphia Freedom or Honky Cat? Sorry, there are just too many. It's not easy to define what makes the talents of two artists combine into perfection, like particles in an accelerator, smashing and creating new matter, or in edible terms like peanut butter and jelly. The Gershwin brothers come to mind, Richard Rogers and Oscar Hammerstein, Duke Ellington and Billy Strayhorn, Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller, Carol King and Jerry Goffin, John Lennon and Paul McCartney, and certainly Elton John and Bernie Taupin. So what was the key to their success? Bernie Taupin gave at least a partial explanation in this 1994 interview with the Academy of Achievement. We're both very, very different characters. You know, I mean, he is obviously known for being very flamboyant, although that's been toned down. And I've, I've always been somebody who prefers not to be in the limelight. I, I, I've never sought that. So I think, I think one of the reasons we have been continually successful and con- we've stayed together for so long is because opposites do attract sometimes. And uh, it's certainly the case with us. Bernie Taupin tells stories from his side, the word side, of one of the greatest music duos in pop and rock and roll on this episode of What It Takes, a podcast about passion, vision, and perseverance from the Academy of Achievement. I'm Alice Winkler. Academy, this child is gifted. And I heard that enough that I started to believe it. If you have the opportunity, not a perfect opportunity, and you don't take it, you may never have another chance. It all was so clear. It it was just like the picture started to form itself. There was no way in which 
a lie could prevail over the truth. Darkness over light, death over life. Every day I wake up and decide, today I'm going to love my life. Decide. My advice is, if they're going to break your leg once when you go in that place, stay out of there. <laughs> and then along come these differential experiences that you don't look for, you don't plan for, but boy, you better not miss them. In just a couple of weeks, as I record this, Elton John is embarking on a three-year, 300-date final tour, what he's calling his Farewell Yellow Brick Road Tour. The name is a play, of course, on the title of his all-time classic album and song, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. The lyrics to that song, like every song in the LP, were written by Bernie Taupin. If you remember the first verse, I'm not going to sing it, but I'll read it. It contains the lines, I should have stayed on the farm. I should have listened to my old man. When are you going to come down? When are you going to land? I should have stayed on the farm. I should have listened to my old man. Well, those lines are autobiographical. Bernie Taupin really did grow up on a farm, and the song is about his decision to leave it, to pursue his musical dreams. I'm the archetypal farm boy. I was raised on a very remote farm in uh, rural Lincolnshire. Lincolnshire is a very sort of desolate, windswept county in the northeast of England, and it's primarily farmland. Uh, basically potatoes, other arable crops. Most of the people from that area are farmers. But luckily, to my advantage, I had parents, or especially my mother, who came from a relatively literate background. Her father was a, a college professor at Cambridge, majored in literature. So that was sort of my ace in the hole from an early, early age. He wasn't a great student, actually, but he told interviewer Gail Eichenthal he read a lot. I didn't read so many books as I read poetry. I love poetry, and, and the kind of poetry that I loved was, were, was almost akin to reading books because it was narrative poetry. I mean, I loved Coleridge, like The Rime of the Ancient Mariner, um, Tennyson, um, Lochinvar. Uh, when I was... Twelve years old, I knew word verbatim every line of Horatius by Lord Macaulay, which, if you're familiar with it, it stretches to about 50 pages. When the good man mends his armor and trims his helmet's plume, when the good wife's shuttle merrily, who's flashing through the loom, with weeping and with laughter, still is the story told how well Horatius kept the bridge in the brave days of old. When other kids were running out into the backfields and sort of playing the cowboys and Indians, you know, I was I was reenacting, as I say, Horatio keeping the bridge and and Lochinvar riding down the hills with my wooden sword, you know. Uh, so to say that uh, I had delusions of grandeur is putting it mildly. Um, but no, I drew so much. I drew so much from narrative poetry. I loved it because I loved the flow of it. I loved what it said. It was so, it was, it was full of blood and guts and romance and heart and soul. And there was something that lived and breathed in it. And 
I have to actually thank narrative poetry for probably putting me into the course of what I do now. But Bernie Toppin's love of poetry had to sit and wait for years while he worked his way through secondary school. Secondary school in the British system was where you went, he explained, if you were not deemed college material. The only thing I had an interest in, basically, was literature and history, and everything else I was a total dud at. So I went to a secondary school, and it was somewhat like a, basically, one step up from a prison camp. Um, Education... uh, was at very low level. I mean, basically what it was, was they just kept you there, as I said, until you were old enough to be put out on the street and you either went to work on the farm or you went to one of the nearby cities and worked in a factory. And um, I didn't really think too much when I was at school. I mean, I, I was a very, I was a dreamer. I, I was very, f- uh, had flights of fantasy and um, I read a lot and watched a lot of uh, TV shows that were brought over from America, a lot of the early sort of westerns, like The Lone Ranger and Hopalong Cassidy and Roy Rogers and all the early sort of B westerns. And I watched whatever movies I could and, and I, I sort of put the two together, literature and, and music that came along later and movies, they all blended together for me so they, they became a sort of cinematic thing in my head. and I. I developed a a taste for writing, which I like to do, and I was encouraged by my mother and and my father. Gail Eichenthal wanted to know, weren't there any teachers that played a role? Almost always in our interviews with great achievers, there's some teacher, if you reach back far enough, who helped break through. Not so here, but for Toppin, that offered its own kind of life lesson. The only teacher I ever had in my life that meant anything to me was my mother and my father, but from a different standpoint. My, my father was the archetypal sort of solid rock. It was always there behind me. But my mother was, you know, the, the engine that drove my soul, you know, and still is to this day. Uh, but unfortunately, I'd like to say that there were teachers at school. Um, there's, a, there's a quote from a song called No Surrender by Bruce Springsteen, where it says, I learned more from a three-minute record than I ever learned at school. And I have to say that in my case, that's, that's true. Um, that's not a discouragement to anybody because I think what, in a way, that can also mean is that, yeah, if there are people there to encourage you and you have the opportunity at school to have people that really are interested in you. I didn't have that opportunity. My teachers didn't care. I mean, they really didn't care. But that's a different time and a different age. Now, I mean, teachers are the most... I mean, it's the most wonderful profession. It's, I, I have so much admiration for people that teach. They don't get paid enough. They, don't, they, they should be getting far more than, than they're given. But I think what I'm saying by that particular line is that get what you can from school, but learn from everything around you. Learn from life. Breathe in life. Soak it up. And um, whoever you can learn something from that you, you feel is, is a good influence, then you should take as much from them as you can. But when I was about to leave school, um, I went to see the, uh, I, I think there it was called the uh, youth employment officer. And um, I went to see him and he said, you know, what would you like to do when you leave school? And I said, well, I'd 
I'd like to work on a newspaper, meaning that I wanted to sort of write on a newspaper. And he said, well, that's very, uh, that's a little, you know, ambitious of you. You know, normally people around here, they either work on a farm or the factory, you know. And I said, well, I really want to work on a newspaper. And so anyway, to cut a long story short, I ultimately worked on a newspaper, but it was in the print shop. Uh, it was not quite what I had expected. And for about a year after I left school, I worked in a very sort of Dickensian kind of um, uh, print shop doing menial jobs. And I, I, in the end, I couldn't take that, so I left that and I went to work, ultimately went to work on a farm. It had the benefit of familiarity, sure, but it was not what fate intended for Bernie Toppin. And his frustration in the end drove him to take a huge chance. He describes here the wind-up to his moment of decision. I was very, very interested in music at that time. I, I listened to a lot of folk music and I listened to a lot of country music back then. Uh, and this was really prior to the advent of the Beatles and that whole beat boom. And I listened to a guy called Marty Robbins, who I used to love. And Marty Robbins had a song called El Paso, which to this day is probably the one song that I, I have to say, instigated me into doing what I do now because as a lot of country songs are, it's a song, it's like a narrative poem. And when I heard that song, I knew that there was, there was, there was something there that you could, you could tell a story with a song, like a really great story. I mean, it was like listening to a Western being sung. One night a wild young cowboy came in Wild as the West Texas wind Dashing and daring a drink he was sharing With wicked Felina, the girl that I love So in anger I challenged his right For the love of this maiden Down put his hand for the gun that he wore my challenge was answered in less than a heartbeat. The handsome young stranger lay dead on the floor. And that was it. That was, once I heard that, I thought, oh, there's something between rock and the written word here. And one day I was reading a, um, a, newspaper, a musical newspaper called the New Musical Express in 1967, and I saw an ad in it that was for a, a company called Liberty Records, and they were setting up... Um, uh, they were forming a new company, and they wanted writers, artists, development people, anybody to basically generate a new company. And whatever possessed me, I don't know, and I, I'd been writing some very, it was 67, so it was the height of flower power, and you know the hippie movement was in full swing, and I was writing some very sort of idealistic sort of poetry at the time, which was a crib off basically everything that was current. And for some reason, I sent it in. I just shoved it in an envelope. And in fact, um, I put it on the, on the shelf and, and forgot about it. My mother actually mailed it because I'd forgot about it. And I got, several weeks later, I got an answer from an office in London saying, um, if you, you know, happen to be in the area of Mayfair, now this is to somebody who had been raised on a farm for 
for the first part of his life. So anybody asking me whether I, you know, if I happened to be in the area of Mayfair, it was like, oh yeah, right, sure, I'm gonna, you know, be there tomorrow. So it was a big decision of whether, you know, to sort of pack up my belongings and make that change and go down to the big city. And, drumroll please, just kidding. No drumroll necessary. We all know pretty much how the story ends, 30-some-odd albums and dozens of hit songs later. But that was, Bernie Taupin said, one of the defining moments of his life, and he was just a teenager. I think we all have to make big decisions in our lives, and I had to make a big decision very early on to cut all my ties. I was in, I was in a, it was a sort of cocoon living in a small rural area like that. In many ways, at that point in time, I was sort of a king of the hill. You know, I had my little group of friends, and we were, we were the big guys on the block, you know, but there wasn't anybody else to challenge us. There wasn't anything else to challenge us. So I think that when I made that decision to go down to London, and it, that was, that was a, on reflection, that was a big, big deal because I was very close to my parents. And I think in a lot of ways, many people have to make that decision at some point in their life. It may not manifest itself in the same way as that, but when I had to get up that cold sort of winter morning and catch that train, I knew that there was no turning back because if I came back, I was admitting defeat and I didn't want to admit defeat. My parents were very encouraging, which to this day, you know, I can never thank them enough for. They never held me back. They never said I couldn't do anything. I mean, if you have parents like that, then you're, you're one step ahead of the game. And uh, they encouraged me all of my life. And I went down and I met with these people. And the thing was that I had these poems, which were supposedly lyrics. And um, the guy that uh, I met with said, well, I've had this other guy come in. And he writes music, but he can't write lyrics. So maybe we should put the two of you together. So um, I went to another office and met with this guy, a guy called Reg Dwight. We got to know each other, and over the next few weeks, we started writing some things together, and uh, Reg Dwight turned out to be Elton John, and uh, that was July of 1967. If you're curious where the name came from, Reggie Dwight had been performing weekends as a pianist in a pub, and then with a band called Bluesology. Six months after he joined songwriting forces with Bernie Taupin, though, he took the names of two of his bandmates, Elton Dean and Long John Baldry, and combined them into Elton John. Was there an instant chemistry? Did you feel comfortable with each other's style, you know, right away, or did it take some time? Well, obviously, we developed a better style over the years, but the, our initial meeting with each other, we, we got on very well straight away. Um, I think in many ways I, was, I became a bro the brother to him that he never had. He was an only child. I had two brothers, but I had an elder brother who I never really related to. And I had a younger brother who came along later on. So at that particular time, I was somewhat of a loner, and I think we were both very much... Uh, I mean, it was, it's what I've called in the past town mouse, country mouse. You know, I was the green kid from the country, and he was the city kid, but he wasn't that, he wasn't particularly streetwise. In fact, he, again, he was pretty naive too. So I think we found comfort uh, and solace in each other's um, uh, misgivings and, and 
inhibitions and uh, whatever, anything. We, we blended them all together. And yes, anyway, to go back to the original thing, yes, I mean, obviously the first, the first things that we wrote were extremely naive, but, you know, I was only, I was 17 years old, and Elton wasn't much older, and we were really sort of recycling, regurgitating the material of the time, which was, in a way, fairly pretentious, you know. I mean, it was the time of Sergeant Pepper, which certainly wasn't pretentious, but it was... Uh, definitely an icon of its time and everybody was trying to copy that so there were a lot of canyons of your mind and uh, you know swan queens of the laughing lake and color slide city and everything it was it was pure psychedelia <laughs> um, tell us about that uh, interesting different way of doing things um, the words come first the words come first yeah um, obviously that's very much to my advantage because I get to do basically what I want to do. I'm not restricted by the bars of any music. Um, we've tried doing it the other way around and it, there are a couple of songs that work but it's, it's never really, really worked that way. And um, the way that I write is that I love titles. Um, I like to have a title that is that says something that is a little interesting. So I usually, when I am writing, I carry around a tape recorder or a, a pad or something. If I think of a title, I just make a note of it and I get my list of titles. And then I tend to build things around that. And when I write, I usually use a guitar. I play, you know, just chord structures. And that enables me to sort of build a rhythmic pattern in the lyric. And that's a help to Elton when I give it to Elton, when I go to him and say, okay, this is this, this is how I feel about it. I feel that it's this sort of a style. Sometimes I give him a reference song, like I'll say, okay, this is like an old police thing, or this is, I, I see this as a kind of like a reggae feel to it, or uh, obviously the lyrical content will dictate whether it's gonna be a ballad or a sort of you know, an up-tempo song. I mean, if you write a sort of Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting, you know it's not going to be a ballad. To don't let the sun go down on me, you know it's not going to be an up-tempo song. Although he surprised me on several occasions. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Elton John! I can't find
So that's really how we do it. I get a title uh, that is usually uh, inspired by something I feel or I've, I've felt around me or I've uh, seen in a newspaper or, or something that affects me. You know, and there's enough around us and surrounds us to affect us. And so I build it around that. And as I say, I give it to him and explain to him how I feel about it. He takes it. He comes back to me with a germ or a seed of an idea. And the process is not necessarily or is not usually very long. I mean, we write songs very quickly. So quickly that they were able to put out their first 11 albums in just eight years. I wonder, uh, when you had your first hit, did you know you had a hit on your hands? No, I, I had no idea what a hit was. I mean, it was, there were songs I heard on the radio, but I didn't know what it meant to manufacture, construct, or, or write what was termed as quote-unquote a hit. Um, I should say, as, as a matter of historical interest, is that when Elton and I first started writing, Elton was not uh, an artist. We were just songwriters. So in 1967, when we first started writing, we signed with a publishing company in London, a very prestigious publishing company. In fact, the one that publishes or published the Beatles. And um, so we were what they call basically just in-house writers. And we felt somewhat bullied into writing songs that were very mainstream for the current artists of the day and and those people were people like sort of Tom Jones and Engelbert Humperdinck and Lulu and people like that who didn't write their own songs and depended on songwriters I can't go on living without you So in order to make, you know, butter our bread, we felt obligated to write songs for those people and we weren't, un we weren't comfortable in that because that's not what we wanted to do, we wanted to create for ourselves. And a gentleman called Steve Brown came to work for the publishing company and just came up to us one day and said, why are you doing this? Why don't you just follow your hearts, write exactly what you want to write? And we said, you mean we can do that? And he said, yeah, I'll take care of the, the big guys. You know, you just go ahead and write whatever you want. And we started writing what we wanted to write, and that was when things started to really turn around. It's a little bit funny This feeling inside We started to develop our own style, and we realized that other people weren't going to record these songs because they were they're a little bit different, and they were uh, they weren't what was current at that time and um, they they were pop songs but they said something and your song was the first song well it wasn't the first song but it was in the first batch of songs that we wrote if I was a sculptor but then again no or a man who makes potions in the 
traveling show I know it's not much But it's the best I can do My gift is my song And this one's for you It's, it's a song that's very much a, uh, a product of its time and it was a very much a product of us then because it's a very, very innocent song. And it was a very innocent time for us and it's, it's, it reflects how we were at that time. It reflects a time of innocence. I hope you don't mind, I hope you don't mind that I put down the words How wonderful life is while you're in Your song introduced Elton John and Bernie Taupin to a wide U.S. audience. It was a top ten hit here when it came out in 1970. It's on Rolling Stone's list of the greatest songs of all time, and it's been inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame. Was there a, a personal story behind the song? No, everybody, I mean, obviously in the mists of time, you know, people have said, oh yes, you obviously wrote it about somebody, but no, I, I can't remember to this day Exactly. I remember writing it because I, I, for those who don't know, again, one of the other things we did that sort of broke the rules in songwriting was that we did everything the other way around. I, you know, I always write the lyrics first and Elton writes the music after and it's always been that way and that's not how it's normally done. But I do remember writing the song. I wrote it, the lyrics to it in about five minutes over breakfast one day because the original lyric of it still exists and it's got sort of egg stains on it and coffee cup marks on it. But I remember actually sitting down and writing it, but what the inspiration for it was has, is lost to me now. Another of the dynamic duo's hit songs that people have long assumed was personal isn't, at least not in the way people think. probably the most misinterpreted song in in our repertoire it's it's been called everything god knows i mean i can't even go into the list of 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 interpretations that it's had and one of the reasons supposedly that people have misinterpreted it was because it originally had a last verse and it was too long so we had to get rid of the last verse but um that would have cleared it up I don't know if it would have cleared it up. It might have helped a little. But basically, it was a song I, at the time, it was the time of the Vietnam War, and people were coming home from the Vietnam War. And I read a story about a young man from central Texas who came back after being in the Tet Offensive. And he was pretty shell, I mean, obviously, like every other vet coming back, you know, obviously, he was war weary. And he didn't. He came from a small town, he went back and there were flags and banners and, and he, was bought, he was brought back as a hero and he didn't want to know about that. He just wanted to go back to his life. And he was basically driven away from his home 
by people's adulation of him. And so I made it in the story about his younger brother and him going away to Europe because he couldn't stand being in his own country anymore because he, he felt he was a freak. And I simplified it tremendously, but that's what inspired it. I, I'm not saying, I mean, that's what inspired the song and that's what it was for me. And that was, you know, Daniel, my brother, is, you know, he's traveling tonight on a plane, but I'm going to Spain, you know. So um, that's, that's the inspiration of the song, yeah. Listen to Sam Smith's rendition of it for Revamp, one of the two Elton John, Bernie Taupin tribute albums that came out in the spring of 2018. so much around us to draw from. I mean, whether it's political, social, whether it's from your own heart, whether it's from your own situation around you, you know, I mean, obviously you, you draw from your own personal relationships. I mean, it, I'd, I'd be lying if I didn't say a lot of my more romantic songs were based on my own personal relationships, which is kind of strange because I have somebody else singing my own life, you know which uh, I don't want to make it sound like I'm the puppet master, you know, but I suppose in many ways, you know, I, I, I sort of pull the strings. And one of the strings Bernie Toppin has always pulled comes from his deep fascination with all things U.S. Toppin moved to California in 1970, the same year his songwriting career with Elton John took off, and he's lived there ever since. Like I said earlier, one of the things, when I was a child, Everything I drew from was American-made, American-thought-of. I, I sucked up everything that was American. I loved everything that was American. I just lived to go to America. And that's not to discount my mother country, which, you know, I had a great upbringing, but that's, that's the past. And when I first came to America in 1970, I got off that plane. I knew that this is where I wanted to be. Why? And why? Because... Uh, there was, uh, again, bringing up the cliches of land of opportunity, but there is no country in the world where you can fulfill your dreams the way that you can in this country. And, and we were accepted and embraced by this country before we were actually uh, accepted by the people at home. I mean, we, we made our fame and fortune in America, and I'm um, thankful for that to this day. But American culture has always been a great fascination to me. I, I study American Western history. I, you know, I'm a devotee of that. Um, and I just, I mean, everything, everything that I wrote about was garnered from American life, the li American lifestyle, whether it was the American West or the inner city. It all came from here. So it makes sense that the second tribute album that came out in 2018, the one Bernie Taupin helped out with, features a collection of American country artists reimagining the Taupin-John catalog. Take a listen to Leanne Womack singing Honky Cat 
and you'll wonder whether you should have thought of Elton John as a country act all along. When I look back, boy, I must have been green, bopping in the country, fishing in a stream, looking for an answer, trying to find a sign. Until I saw your city lights Honey, I was blind They said, get back, honky cat Better get back to the woods Well, I quit those days And my redneck ways And oh, oh The chain is gonna do me the staying power of Bernie Taupin and Elton John's songs, many of them 50 years on, can only be seen as a massive success. But funny enough, Bernie Taupin sees songwriting as a part-time gig. He's even called it a hobby. After all, as he said earlier, he writes fast. All the lyrics for the album Goodbye Yellow Brick Road took him two and a half weeks. When he and Elton John, or he and the several other people he's teamed up with, set out to make an album. He writes songs, but otherwise he's pursuing other passions. Horses, for example, which he raised and rode for many years, and the visual arts. These days he identifies primarily as a painter. So for Bernie Taupin, success has taken many forms. And as he told interviewer Gail Eichenthal, it really all boils down to two phrases, believing in himself and following his heart. You can only recycle those words in so many different ways, but that's really what it is. I mean, sometimes cliches are the honest truth. And um, I can say no more than that, because that's all I've done all my life, is I've followed my dreams, I believed in myself. You've got to have belief in yourself. You've got to have a little bit of an ego, you know? If you don't, if, you're, if you humble yourself too much, you're gonna stumble, you know? You've got to believe that what you do is right, that, that what you do is good. And um, heart, heart is what it's all about. You've got to stick with what you believe in. Um, and it, it doesn't matter what you wanna do, you know? I mean, people come up to me all the time and say, how do you do what you do? I don't know how I do what I do. I can't answer that question. I don't know how some guy that comes to my house fixes my air conditioning. You know, that's beyond me. It's like, how the hell did he do that, you know? Um, and I don't know if he knows how he does it, you know, but everything is an art. It doesn't matter what you do, you know? Find something, uh, you can't, what I do, I don't think you can say, okay, I'm gonna grow up and be a songwriter. You've got to have something in you that, that whether it's in your genes or whatever, but there are certain things that have to be there and you have to nurture them. And again, heart, belief, go and follow your dreams. Even in a career with too many high points to count, there've been a few that stand out a little higher. We're going to end with three of them. I think one of the high points has to be uh, John Lennon playing with us at Madison Square Garden. It was the last performance, um, his last performance. And that was, that was extremely moving because John hadn't played on stage in years. In fact, he hadn't played, I think, probably for five years live prior to that. Lucy in the sky.
It was it was just a tremendously moving experience. Um, I think because he was so nervous, and he wasn't sure if people would accept him, and um, it was made doubly tragic because, as I say, it was the last time John played live before he was assassinated. After another tragic death, Princess Diana's, Elton John, wanting to honor his friend, the Princess of Wales, asked Bernie Taupin to rewrite the lyrics to Candle in the Wind. Elton John performed it live only once at Diana's funeral in 1997. Loveliness we've lost Those empty days without your smile This torch we'll always carry for our nation's golden child Even though we try The truth brings us to tears All our words cannot express The joy you've brought us through the years And it seems to me You've lived your life like a candle in the wind Never fading with the sunset When the rain set in And your footsteps will always fall here Along England's greenest hills Your candles burned out long before Your legend ever will The song became an outlet around the world for the grief around Diana's death. It also became the highest-selling single of all time on the Billboard chart and raised $177 million for Princess Diana's charities. Your candles burned out long before Your legend ever will Bernie Taupin's third career high point, the one we're going to end on, is also tinged with sadness because it involves Aretha Franklin, who died just a couple of weeks ago as I record this podcast, and who we are all still mourning. But the connection between Aretha Franklin and Bernie Taupin is nothing but joy, and so a fitting tribute to them both. The very first song that Bernie Taupin and Elton John wrote together that made it onto the Billboard chart was called Border Song, appearing at number 92. It, I feel like Casey Kasem here. It came out on the 1970 album called Elton John. Well, two years later, Aretha Franklin released the song on an album of her own, raising its profile and its ranking on the charts. The original recording, Elton John's, incorporated elements of gospel and soul, but now the queen of soul herself had taken it on. Here too. 
Christian cousin from down the line Brand of people who ain't my kind Holy Moses, I have been removed To have an artist of her stature record one of their songs so early in their careers, they were still in their early 20s, was a little bit magic, and a harbinger of all the musical magic that was to come for Elton John and Bernie Taupin. I'm Alice Winkler, and this is What It Takes from the Academy of Achievement. Thank you so much for listening, and thanks to the Catherine B. Reynolds Foundation for funding What It Takes. Yes, I-